from the Free Speech Project at Georgetown University. This is Speaking Freely. I'm Sanford Unger. Those of us of a certain age remember that sound. It's what we heard in the early days of the Internet as our computers connected to what was sometimes called the information superhighway. The World Wide Web first entered our homes in the mid-1990s, and it seemed to take over very quickly. Though the dial-up Internet was cumbersome and slow, millions of Americans were hooked, and competition grew among providers. In early 1994, telecommunications giant MCI entered the digital world with television ads featuring 11-year-old Academy Award-winning actress Anna Paquin. A worldwide conversation between millions of people via computer. Scientist to scientist, teacher to teacher. It's not about data, digits, technology. It's not even about highways. It's about you and me. Every book, every movie, every piece of knowledge in the universe. Right here. The possibilities are endless. Our guest on this edition of Speaking Freely has been carefully observing the growth of the Internet since those early days. Cindy Cohen is executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation a nonprofit founded in 1990 by a small group of concerned leaders of the technology community to, as its website says, defend civil liberties in the digital world. Cindy Cohen has been working with the organization for 25 years, first as outside counsel, then as general counsel, and from 2015 as its executive director. The thing that is awesome about the digital technologies is they let everyone communicate with each other Theoretically, on equal footing, right? Uh, traditionally, you would say that you know free speech is your right to buy a printing press, right? right. Like, and so the number of people who could actually participate right. in the public discussion was really limited because right. they of the say expense. Freedom of the press belongs to those who own one. Well, now we all own one. The barriers to entry have been really, really lowered, which means everybody can have a voice. As late as um, the late 1990s, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called ACLU versus Reno, recognized that this was an opportunity to fulfill the promise of free speech in the First Amendment. This was one of the first projects of the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the ACLU was to make sure that as these technologies developed, the benefit that they gave all of us, that we could all have a voice in our ongoing public debates, was enshrined and protected by the Constitution, and um, we were able to win that you know, pretty early on. It's a ringing endorsement. It was a 9-0 decision that, that recognized that the Internet was a place of free speech, and especially a new kind of place of free speech, mm-hmm. in, in that it, it really was a free speech for everyone, not just for the wealthy. So now, is, that, <clears throat> is there a dangerous aspect to that, that some people say things, write things, circulate things on the internet that are not only untrue, but malicious. Sure, we've never really protected free speech because we're going to like everything that no, of course not. Uh, say, I understand that. or that there aren't ideas that are dangerous and scary. It puts responsibility back on us, the listeners, to really be able to differentiate between truth and falsity, between good ideas and bad ideas. I mean, this is the promise of self-government. Well, well, that's the promise of democracy. Correct. And certainly the founders 
thought that would work. Well, they didn't want there to be a gatekeeper who got to decide right. what the rest right. of us heard. And that's not because there won't be bad ideas. It's because who are you going to give that power to? Of the course. power of the gatekeeper is so strong that it ends up being the most important person. And then you've taken this thing that you democratized and made it not a democracy right. anymore. Right. Do you remain confident in the good sense of consumers of, of the Internet? Well, I hope so. I do find that every time a new technology gets introduced to people, the kind of first generation of people who get their hands on it like have to figure out sure. how to deal with it. This is true about cars. You know, We had horrible traffic accidents in the right. early days of cars. I think that, that we are going to have to go through a period where we're going to have to figure out how to have the right instincts around some of this information so that we do the right thing. I still think that the alternative, where you put somebody else in charge of what the rest of us get to see and think about, is worse. I've watched internet platforms in their attempts to try to censor and make sure that, you know, that good things happen and bad things don't, and they're horrible at it. I wouldn't trust the government, not the current federal government, but probably not the past one either to be making those decisions. So as much as you might be frustrated with what's going on right now, I don't think you can have that conversation honestly without looking at what the alternatives look sure. like. And so, of course, there are going to be some bad things that happen. And, and I certainly am not saying that there, there isn't a downside to this path. Uh, what I'm saying is that the other paths also have serious downsides. Sure. And there's some magical thinking I find going on right now that, you know, suddenly Mark Zuckerberg's going to become the guy who magically knows the difference between right. good speech and bad speech. And I can tell you, he doesn't. Well, no one can be vested with that power to make the right decisions about all these things. At the same time, there are some very severe social problems, guns. You and I would probably agree there are real issues with guns. And there's a lot of stuff online that stokes the paranoia that contributes to the irresponsible use of guns. I think that that's true. On the other hand, I think that, to me, if the guns are your problem, then maybe you ought to focus what you're doing about them on the guns and not the speech about guns. Because what we're seeing you know, right now today is the power of the network to organize against Guns. But you I know, think that the work that the kids have done in Florida right now around responding to what happened to them could not have happened without social media. I think we're doing ourselves a disservice if we're focusing on the speech about the thing as opposed to the thing itself. I think that's true about guns. I think that's true about Nazi protests that are going on. I think that's true about a lot of social problems that it's a kind of convenient and a little fashionable right now to talk about the social networks and of their course. role in this. What, what about the problem of false accusations online that are impossible to erase? Things get said that may not be true and they just show up in those Google searches for time immemorial. Well, I think there's a lot that can be done to require transparency and accountability by the platforms about how those systems work. There's a lot of work that we can do around uh, making sure that we're not captured by the platform strategy of keeping you there that isn't really fundamentally about censorship. It's about transparency and it's about giving us options. Right. And, and, and I think that the, those are really fruitful places to look at because there's a reason why these fake accusations blow up as opposed to being just a thing that happens and then goes away. 
And that's because of the way that a lot of these systems for deciding what's going to come up on our feeds work. And we deserve to understand those and to be able to push back on them. How about the right to be forgotten that's talked about in Europe, where you can get something, I suppose, with the proper evidence or the proper argument, you can get something removed. I'm worried about that. And the reason I'm worried about that is exactly what you said with the proper evidence and the proper argument. The systems that have been put up to right now in the right to be forgotten in Europe, I don't think are, are sensitive enough to the needs of due process here. And I've been on panels with the privacy commissioners who are implementing this. These are people who are interested in privacy and not right. necessarily in free speech. Now, I care about both. You're I'm interested in privacy. We're going to get to that in much. a second. Very much. I can talk about that. But... I really worry the right to be forgotten. If you look at the history so far, what it, first of all, it has a, a similar problem that we've seen in other things, which is wealthy people with resources can get information about themselves erased, and poor people can't. But does that it's mean that no one should be able to do it? I am very nervous about the right to be forgotten. We've got about a year or two of, ex of examples on it. The lack of transparency into how this works. You know, uh, Eugene Volokh, who's a professor at uh, UCLA, uh, was, you know, discovered that there was a police officer in Texas who had used the right to be forgotten process to try to get some information about something he'd actually done wrong, erased from the internet. And he couldn't even get access to the records of what the request was because the guy's privacy interest was held to be more important than figuring out what it was he was erasing from the mm -hmm. internet. You know, there's a real worry that this kind of rule is going to create a memory hole where it's impossible to find out what actually happened. I worry very much not only about important, useful information going away and the disproportionate way that this has so far been implemented. Right. Let's segue for a moment to the issue of privacy mm -hmm. that we were just talking about. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, as I understand it, is in the vanguard of trying to protect the privacy rights of Americans. Yes. Uh, and especially, perhaps, from government surveillance, things like the National Security Agency. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's very difficult to have a self-governing entity when the government knows every communication you have, who you talk to when you talk to them. I think it's fundamental to a functioning self-government system of any kind that people have some privacy from their own government. And if we don't have that, then the rest of it begins to fall. I worry about privacy vis-a-vis -vis big companies, too. We don't have the constitutional kinds of tools to right. go against that. The Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment, they're all about how the government works. So in the context of our litigation, those that's really the focus. But we worry as well about the dossiers and we worry about them because the line between the government and these companies has gone away. We, the fundamental thing that the NSA is doing now is going to the companies that have all our communications and making them turn that stuff over to them. That's Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, which is a big fight we just uh, lost in Congress. is yeah. all about the ability of the government to go to private companies and make them turn over what they know about us and, and what standards should apply to that. I think the legislative fight you were just referring to resulted in a bipartisan vote to renew the surveillance programs of the NSA, in, in effect to make them perhaps more openly legal than they were before. A little bit. They changed the scope a little bit, but mainly they uh, reauthorized what the right. government was already doing. And it, and it appears to be completely bipartisan. I mean, 
community. Yeah, the intelligence community is very powerful in both parties. There have been concerns all the way back to Eisenhower about the military-industrial complex and the ability right. of the intelligence community to truncate and place off limits, public debate about what they do. And I think we saw this play out. Now, you know, we've had exceptions, too. Under the Bush administration, there were four gigantic national security surveillance programs. This is Bush 2. Bush 2. Three of them have now been discontinued. Internet metadata, telephone records collection, and massive content collection under the purely presidential authority. Those three have all ended. As far as we know. Yeah, um, as far as we know. But they've made sworn statements in public that they've ended. So, yes, they could be lying, and I'm, I'm not saying that, but, but you know, they, they weren't a, doing that, and the now they are. The famous clip of uh, General Clapper right. on, in a hearing, televised hearing, saying, we are not doing things yeah. like that. Yeah. Edward Snowden has played a particular role in you publicizing sure that Yeah, it's what spurred him back to watching the lying. My point is that, on the one hand, it's very frustrating that in this latest battle we were not able to scale back what the government is doing. But they have scaled back, well, there was a law passed for telephone records collection, but all the other programs have been scaled back because of the public pressure. They just didn't happen in a big congressional showdown situation. Uh, Something called about searching, which is when the government is searching through the content of communications that it's collecting off of the telecommunications infrastructure was stopped voluntarily by the government after pressure from the FISA court that they were not the able FISA to do FISA court being the uh, special court of judges, already sitting federal judges, who uh, have temporary assignments to make judgments when the government seeks warrants to surveil people electronically or... Correct, for in the context of national security. Right, so right. So originally this court, FISA, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, was aimed at when the government was seeking warrants to uh, track spies. The role of this secret court was dramatically expanded uh, after, as, 9/11. after 9-11. And now they kind of serve as an ongoing referee of all national security surveillance, right. uh, not just surveilling spies, but surveilling anybody overseas when Americans are caught up in the overseas surveillance. Um, that's the number that the government has never told us, and I think they've never told us that because Americans would be shocked at how many people are caught up in that. You think it would be a large percentage of the American population? Absolutely. I think it would be the majority of Americans. So the recent, uh, relatively recent extension of the PRISM program, I believe, that was extended. There's two. One is called PRISM and the other is called Upstream. Right. Um, That are the publicly known programs that are under 702. I suspect there are others as well. So that's, you believe, still a threat to our privacy? Absolutely. It's the difference between, you know, the cops uh, having uh, an interest in you and going to your house and getting approval to search your house and the cops interested in you and therefore getting permission to search every house on your, uh, you know, every house in your town. The argument that the government has is as long as they have a foreign target, everybody else who they search on their way to that doesn't matter. The fundamental issue underneath this is how much of our privacy or our assurance of privacy are we willing to surrender or compromise on in the name of national security? I think that there's some pushing that needs to happen there because I think that the idea that you surrender your privacy and therefore you get more national security is not yet proven. We know that once the government searches through this stuff and then collects it, that the FBI 
can search through that information for purely domestic crimes. Right. So the idea that you're just giving up for national security is not true. You're giving it up for any law enforcement purpose, much broader than just national security. And much broader than national security because it's all foreign intelligence. And foreign intelligence can include things like whether our companies are getting a fair shake in trade deals sure. from other things. So it's much broader. And then the question about you know how much more safe are we getting is one that the government refuses to answer. So you know we know that they come up with these stories about how they've stopped so-and-so terrorists because of these programs. But whenever you scratch on it a little bit, you, you find out it's much murkier than that. And... Building a bigger haystack doesn't actually help you find the needle, right? It's, <laughs> it's targeting, so swooping in all the rest of us and forcing the government to go through all the dreck of our daily communications, I would question whether that's your best strategy. It gets a lot of other things that the government wants, but it doesn't actually, I think, solve the main problem of trying to do better intelligence about the things that you want. This is what the 9-11 Commission found. The 9-11 Commission did not find that the government needed more power in order to stop the terrorists. It found that the government wasn't smartly using the power exactly. that it already that, had. Right. And this sur whole surveillance infrastructure is based upon the idea that the government needed more power. I submit that we need to have a real public discussion about this with real facts. It's hard to disagree with your saying this is the kind of public discussion we need. How are we going to get it? Who's going to create it? Who's going to lead it? Well, I think that... You, I the think Electronic Frontier Foundation. I would Foundation. be delighted to. I think that, you know, rightfully, this ought to be the Congressional Intelligence Committees, but, you know, there's a lot of research about them that they are pretty captured by the intelligence community. I think if you look at why those committees were set up, they were set up to be a check and not to be a rubber stamp of what the intelligence community is doing, but I don't think that they have served that purpose very well. It really is a question of, you know, do we think that there are wise old men who know better than mm -hmm. the rest of us and not a, you know, that the spy craft and intelligence is the kind of thing that happens in books where you get, you know, wise men who make these decisions for the rest of us? Or do we really want a self-governing country where, you know, of course there are some things that are secret, but that's a small amount compared to the ways that the American people need to decide when your communications and, and your network of communications, so it's, you know, part of this is the content of your communications, but the much more powerful part is who are all the people you talk to? What do your networks look like? They call this contact chaining or call chaining. When that's readily available to the government, that is an inhibition on free speech. Absolutely. And this is the part that I think kind of comes back to our program here. People talk about this in terms of privacy. But I think what gets overlooked sometimes is the free speech component of this and the right to associate, the right to build communities that can stand to together. To assemble, to present grievances, association, to, to do right all those things the First Amendment says. Yeah, and I think that that gets missed in all of this cloak and dagger spy, blah, blah, blah stuff, which is, you know, fun and interesting, but we've all read the novels about that. But so we don't need the reality. <laughs> it's okay, but it's not. The reality is not the novels, right? right? The reality right. is some people with computers who are able to find out everybody who you talk to. And that's fine if you're not interested in changing your government. But it gets really dangerous if you're interested in changing your government because they will try to stop that. They're going to try to protect their power. And when we see this, you know, we certainly see this in the United States where organizers and activists who are trying to, uh, over the government, become the targets of surveillance. This, this overwhelmingly affects vulnerable people. Right now in our country, it affects immigrants. It affects people who are doing Black Lives Matter. It affects people who are trying to organize against gun violence or for gun protection. Honestly, that 
there's surveillance of yes. any uh, organization, regardless of the political will, although I think right now in the government we're seeing it slanting one way. This matters if you want to have a functioning democracy, and it's very real. It's not the stuff of science fiction. It's not the stuff of spy novels. We see this a lot overseas, and, and the governments absolutely take advantage of the fact that they can go to tech companies and find out who's in the opposition. There's no reason to think that that is never going to happen here isn't happening now here. I believe that self-government is the right way to go. I don't think that you should have kings, and I don't think that you should have <laughs> oligarchs or, you know, right. wise old men who decide what's best for the rest of us. Cindy Cohn, the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has been our guest on this edition of Speaking Freely. For an extended version of our conversation and others in this series, you can visit the Speaking Freely section of our website, freespeechproject.georgetown.edu. Our project is funded by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation. I'm Sanford Unger. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Speaking Freely.